Hi, this is Beth's Mum with Mum Talks, and today you're listening to Emily Tish Sussman on the How To Podcast. Did you know, in 2018, Deb Haaland became one of the first Native American women elected to Congress. In 2021, Deb Haaland was appointed by President Joe Biden to serve as the Secretary of the Interior, becoming the first Native American person to serve in a presidential cabinet. Hey, you're listening to the How To Podcast with your host and me, Beth Evans. Join me for a special series in which I investigate the feminist movement and political landscape in the United States. So change into those comfies, cosy up with your favourite drink and hear from the women changing the face of politics, one podcast episode at a time. This season, I'm speaking with women hosting political podcasts in the United States about their conversations with female candidates and activists, the need to increase political participation and why we need more women everything. On this episode, I'm joined by Emily Tish Sussman, host of Your Political Playlist, a definitive guide to politics in the new presidential administration and Congress, interviewing women at the seat of power and activism. The podcast has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, HuffPost, CNN and more. Emily is a leading democratic political strategist with over 250 appearances on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News and CBS. She is a member of Emily's List's Creative Council and has also served as a senior advisor to Swing Left and held the role of Vice President of Campaigns for the Centre for American Progress Action Fund, the largest progressive think tank in Washington DC. She has also won the 2016 Media Surrogate Award by Hillary for America and the 2019 40 Under 40 Award by American Association of Political Consultants. Yes, I can hear you better now. Perfect. Okay, well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. So why don't you start by telling us about your political background? Sure. So um, I went to work on a campaign first thing out of college. It wasn't really a plan. I wasn't really somebody who had like a, a grand vision of where I was going <laughs> or working in politics at all. But when I left college, I knew that I really did not want to reelect the president at the time, which is President George Bush. So I moved to the New York swing state and I showed up at the office and I said, I'm here to work uh, and worked through the campaign there. And there was something about working on the campaign that just really connected with me. And I felt like I loved working as part of a, a, a community where everyone had one goal. We were changing the world together. I could tolerate like a high volume and high pace of work. And I actually thrived in it, which was really a first for me. Um, so after we lost that campaign, 
was sad I didn't have a job, but it opened up a whole new realm of possibility. So I went to law school. When I graduated law school, I went to go work on President Obama's campaign and voter protection. And then after we won, I moved to Washington and it started the next almost about 10 years of working in federal advocacy and federal campaigns. So when I first went to Washington, I worked for a small nonprofit organization called the Service Members Legal Defense Network, where we represented LGBT members of the military as they were getting discharged from the military under the Don't Ask and Tell policy. So for being gay and lesbian or suspected of being, uh, I worked on repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law there. And I worked with the Pentagon on changing their personnel policies. From there, I went to go work for, I ran the Young Democrats of America for Obama's reelection campaign. Uh, and then I went to the Center for American Progress for a little more than six years where I got to work on a large variety of issues, running campaigns for them. So everything from, I managed uh, the Surgeon General's confirmation against um, opposition from the NRA, I worked on healthcare. Um, I helped the, the think tank kind of reform after Trump's win because we were not prepared for that in 2016. Um, and through that time, I started going on TV as a political strategist commenting and have continued doing that uh, for almost nine years now. Um, and after I left CAP, started a political podcast. So kind of opening up the questions and the process that I have when I dig in to understand an issue before I go on TV and like opening that up for the public. Wow, you have, you've had an amazing career so far and you've done so much for so many people. So do you think those experiences are what motivated you to start the podcast? Definitely. I felt like starting the podcast, um, so much of my time at the Center for American Progress in particular was we had these resources at the think tank. We had the smartest people on the policies. So we had the smartest people in healthcare policy, the smartest people in oceans policy. And most of their work was creating forward-looking policies for Congress and for the White House to be changing policies. My team's job was both to push those things through to create a campaign for it, but also to help translate it to the public so it was actually useful. And we really weren't able to succeed in doing that. I think very little of the time we were actually able to translate what was going on for regular people. And, it, and I kind of realized that, that living in the bubble, like living in the Washington bubble, there wasn't a big desire to be translating things for regular people. It just wasn't seen as a high value, but it was important to me. Mm -hmm. So as I stepped back from it, I thought, well, how do I take this, the access to these experts um, the ability to have conversations with people in a relatable way. How do I open that up? And so that was really the basis for starting the podcast. Amazing. So talk me through your aims for the podcast and what kinds of conversations we can expect. So we are going to have smart, we always have <laughs> smart, but digestible conversations. So they're very conversational in nature. It should feel like you're talking to a friend to try to understand a policy. And what I care about when we have policy conversations is not just about learning the actual, the intricacies of the policy, but contextualizing it. Mm -hmm. So is this a big idea when it comes to healthcare policy? Is it a small idea when it comes to the field? Is it a le very left? Is it very right? What is the context in Congress? Like, is it likely to happen? Um, how would it actually get pushed through? So answering those kinds of questions in a way that feels, or that feels relatable, like someone can actually step into it without feeling intimidated. 
Yeah, great. So you've worked on many extraordinary projects for women throughout your career, including the podcast, which I think is a fantastic one. So how can you, so can you tell me about your, the surrogate program you implemented in 2018 and explain how it helps get more women elected into politics? Yeah, absolutely. So the podcast, all of my experts on the podcast are women, which is something that I think you were implicitly touching on. Uh, part of that in creating, it was a really important piece in creating the show for me, mm -hmm. partly because so many experts I knew, I felt like were the absolute expert on the issue. They're the ones that I would go to if I wanted to understand something, mm -hmm. but they weren't getting those, they weren't promoting themselves to get some kind of ticking off those resume builders or credential builders that would then have them be considered like, you know, quote, an expert in the field. So for instance, getting a lot of media hits and then once they were more recognized in media, then being asked to testify in a Senate committee hearing. So if I was creating a platform, I wanted to make sure that I was utilizing it to lift up the, the women who are the experts. Mm -hmm. um, and the other piece is, is a cultural one that as we are going to, if we want more women in power, then we have to get used to hearing female voices talk about wonky subjects. Right. And when women come on as experts, I, I find that women are often asked to couch their expertise in personal experience. And there are a lot of women who are experts on topics because of personal experience, but there are also a lot of women who are academic experts on an issue and professional experts on an issue. Yeah. So they don't have to have experienced something to be an academic expert on it. Yeah. So those were kind of the aims uh, for me. And, and there are a lot of men who are excellent experts and they have a lot of outlets to speak on, but my show is not one of them. No. <laughs> so that's the podcast and why I have all women on the show. Uh, my job in 2018 is that I ran a national surrogates program for the midterm elections for congressional, the congressional elections. So I worked for an organization called Swing Left, which was founded in the wake of Donald Trump's election. It was um, volunteers from all over the country who lived in primarily Democratic areas and felt like they had all this energy. And they wanted to, they wanted someone to tell them what were the congressional districts that could flip from a Republican to Democrat. And they wanted someone to tell them how to do it. And so Swing Left became that organization. So my job uh, as national director of the surrogates program is that I connected with celebrities, who people who had big platforms, um, and brought them into the campaign for the last couple months of the election to figure out exactly which campaigns they should be plugging into, like which congressional candidates and how they would do it. Great. And then I placed them and then we did it and I went with them. <laughs> so do you think your projects play into your podcast aims? I know you've touched on that. So, and you know, and specifically who you choose to interview. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having women on as the professional experts is a very big aim for me. So the way that I choose guests, sometimes I'll choose the topics that I want to talk about and then go find a guest. So for example, infrastructure was a topic that I really wanted to cover in this, um, in this past season of the podcast, because I knew that infrastructure was going to be like the next big thing for the Biden administration. I didn't naturally have an, uh, a female infrastructure expert in my network. So I went out and researched and found out who the expert was that I wanted on. Um, in other cases, I start with the expert that, you know, I do naturally have a great expert of, of women, a network of women who are experts. Um, and so I, you know, will come on with a topic of something that I want them, that I want to bring them on. So for that also happened this past season, for example, um, 
a woman that I worked with, Tamara Fusili, was Obama's legislative expert in the White House and is an expert on the budget process. Mm. I didn't naturally have a budget episode for her because the budget wasn't being worked on at that point in time, mm-hmm. but she was an expert that I really wanted her voice out on. Um, so we came up with a, a topic of evaluating Biden's first 100 days in terms of economic policy so that she would be able to come on and share her expertise. All right. So would would that be one of the reasons for choosing only female guests on your show? Uh, well, having only female guests is is for the two reasons that I had listed. One, that I want to make sure that if I'm creating a platform, I'm utilizing it for women yep. so that they can build their credentials mm-hmm. and they can be and they can go on. And, you know, my show ended up making a lot of news with Hillary Clinton's yeah. episode on it. And so now for each of these women that I have on as the experts, they now have that credential to say, you know, I was on the same show mm-hmm. with that, you know, broke the news about Hillary Clinton. Um, and that can hopefully help get them to the next level. Yep. Um, and also for the societal reason that I think that we just need to hear women talking about hard policy and not have to say like, you know, oh, so I purposely don't ask experts on my show about their personal experiences. Okay. Like we, they're just here to talk about their professional experiences. I do another show uh, for Instagram live for parents magazine called moms run the world. And that, and on that, because of the platform, because mm-hmm. it's Parents Magazine, we dig more into their personal experience mm-hmm. and how it inter- how it um, impacts their professional experience. Mm-hmm. But in my policy shows on your political playlist, we just talk about uh, their professional and policy expertise. If they bring in their personal experience, that makes sense for them because that's how they think about it. And I think it's helpful, especially if they're policymakers, yeah. to know how they're approaching an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, I really want their their professional expertise. So, I I do want to touch on the female the female perspective. I know I just wondered whether you think that there's a difference between the personal experience and the female perspective because it's not obviously having these women on your show. It's not just because they're women they can do as as good as a job as a man could, right, or anyone else that is is due to get elected. So, do you think you know? that's because they feature, you know, you feature conversations from the female perspective. Do you think that's important? Well, I actually don't think that I, that I um, bring on a female perspective huh. per se. I think that I have experts who are women. Right. So I'm starting with the premise of the fact because I think couching it as a female perspective yeah. would indicate that the show is for a women, a female audience, which I actually don't think it is. I think it's for everybody. Um, so, and I, I don't think I'm asking them to come with a particular perspective. I'm asking them to come on as the expert in their field. Yeah. Um, and and they they are women. Yeah. But I, I think that I mean I think that women make excellent leaders and lawmakers uh i think they are more willing to to come to the table and be pragmatic and not stand on ceremony um which is something that i'm upfront about in my show i don't hide that <laughs> um i am very grateful for all the women who, who do run for office but um i think that's part of of their own like their experience and i think that would maybe be part of the conversations of moms run the world but less a part of the conversations in your political playlist. Cause I really do want to make sure that I'm creating a platform that features experts on their expertise. 
Great, thank you. So I want to talk um, about two specific um, episodes from 2020. So in October 2020, you spoke with senior advisor to President Obama and chair of When We All Vote, Valerie Jarrett, about the crucial role women played during the 2020 election. So in what ways can conversations around feminist issues influence listeners to be more politically engaged during events like the US election? So. I think that people don't naturally think that that issues in their lives are political mm -hmm. and have political impacts and have policy solutions. Um, I think particularly women, particularly mothers are used to just having to problem solve and deal with what they have in front of them. Um, and so they don't necessarily think about how structurally things could be different. I think this is why you see a lot of women who have not traditionally been politically active be involved with school boards. Right because that is a place that they can actually see a direct connection between what they are experiencing in their lives and policy. But I think it's, it's bringing in conversations with women at high levels like Valerie Jarrett that will bring a little bit of a spotlight to it. And so having the conversations and playing out how things that people are feeling in their lives are actually um, a direct impact of what policies there are, um, I think is the thing that can actually have people see themselves in political activism, particularly women. Mm -hmm. You know, right now I'm working um, on the national paid leave campaign to get paid leave included in, in the infrastructure bill. And I don't know that we're going to see a large groundswell of women in particular who are so impacted by the lack of national paid leave. I don't know that we're gonna see them that active on this short timeline of the infrastructure bill because they don't, they don't believe that there's a policy that can help them. Mm -hmm. They just think this is their life and they, are, they have to deal with it. Yeah. So, so I think having, you know, using big names to draw attention and have bigger conversations definitely helps us move the ball forward. Great, thank you. So that's actually part of my next question. <laughs> um, so you've, um, in another episode, you've discussed unaffordable childcare, paid family leave, and prioritizing working families with Congresswoman Katie Porter. Um, so why do you think it's important to cover topics like issues affecting women and families? Because it's not just about um, issues that are affecting women, it's about issues that are affecting everyone. And also, what impact do you think your conversations with female candidates, you know, have had on how you want your listeners to feel about voting during elections? Well, I want people to feel powerful. I want them to feel empowered to be able, that they deserve to have their perspective represented. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is going beyond voting and how to be impactful in your own elections or in someone else's. And part of that is just showing up and asking the questions. People don't engage with candidates that much because they don't think they have the right to. They don't think they have the right to be heard mm. and that their circumstances they just have to live with. Mm. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I was very excited to have that conversation with Congresswoman Porter because she has been such an outspoken voice about being the only single mom mm. in Congress and what challenges she's had to face and how she's dealt with it. Mm. You know, it makes you think about some things that are just kind of built into our into our work system right now that are really not geared towards women, moms. You know, in Congress, they didn't even have a women's bathroom that was accessible to the floor of the house because there were no women members of Congress for years and years and years. You know, they couldn't even go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, and so for Katie Porter, she um, she's spoken about 
how the media wanted to follow her grocery shopping and she thought it was so bizarre and she couldn't get over it. And she said, well, I guess it's because members of Congress aren't used to doing their own grocery shopping. <laughs> and so it seemed like a real novelty. Yeah. Um, so being able to interview someone who's been so transparent um, in a confident way, not in an ashamed way, but about what her challenges are and how she needs the system a little bit changed to actually be able to be a part of it was, was a really, it was an honor to, to interview her and a really exciting opportunity. Do you think that it, these conversations make it more relatable, make, make the, make the candidates and, you know, people that they're listening who they think, wow, this person's amazing. She's so high up in, 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 in politics and things. Do you think it makes them more relatable about having conversations about, you know, paid family leave and things that they're doing for everyone? Absolutely. I think a talented politician can connect the challenges that people feel to policy and not all of them are able to do that. Yeah. So, you know, some of them can only speak in disconnected between policy and, and lived experience. Um, and I think the ones that do well are the ones that are able to really, to really connect them. And I think a little bit of that is generational, to be honest. I think for many women, like of our mother's generations, weren't allowed to bring personal experience into a room because they would be discounted as experts. And so they put up a very tough exterior. One of my mother's best friends was very successful on Wall Street for about 30 years. Um, she never had, she had three kids, she was married. She never had a picture of her kid. She never came in late to a meeting. She never mentioned that she had kids. She didn't even wear a wedding ring because she, would, she thinks that it would have been seen as her having too many distractions in her life to be able to take her job seriously. Right. And so for women of that generation, I think they are, they have a harder time. I think it's easier for younger women well, I don't think <laughs> the younger kids makes it impossible, but to be able to have that fluidity to go between lived experience and policy. All right, because there's more women in, in politics now. So I guess politics, politics has become more transparent. And I think, um, I can't remember who the actual lady was, but there was someone who breastfed in the middle of Congress, was it? Um, not to she, she didn't actually breastfeed. <laughs> it was um, Senator Tammy Duckworth. Okay. I had her on as well. Um, there was a fear that she, she, they changed the Senate rules to allow her to bring her newborn child on the floor because you can't give a proxy. Like the only way she was going to be able to vote is for her to be able to show up in person. Right. And there's no maternity leave. Uh -huh. Like she couldn't give a pro, you know, she couldn't be, be on leave and give a proxy to someone else to vote. So they had to change the rules for her to be able to bring her newborn to the floor so she could vote. And the Republican senators didn't want to change the rules for her. Yeah. And it turned out the real reason is because they were afraid that she was going to breastfeed on the floor. And she said, I promise you, I'm not going to breastfeed on the floor. It's crazy that <laughs> women aren't allowed to do maternal things. And obviously, aren't, I didn't even know that they, they don't have um, leave. They don't have, you know... Like that's, it's just should be like a human right. How would they have leave? They have to vote. Yeah, exactly. Um, it seems like it's, it seems like it's quite difficult for, or that at least they would, they've been trying to make it very difficult for women to succeed in politics, you know, given all the rules. It's, it's not a system that's built to have women and particularly not younger women. Right. When there have been women that run for office, um, it's generally 
kind of their second career. Right. They wait until their kids are either grown and out of the house or close to before they start considering themselves able to run themselves. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in the last, let's say, three years, which is very different, four years, which is very different, is younger women yeah. and women with kids. I mean, Nancy Pelosi was a stay-at-home housewife with five kids before she ran for Congress. Yeah. I don't think people realize that, that she was a stay-at-home mom who raised five kids. And then now she's the most powerful She's a force. Speaker. She's amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she can do it all. Like, <laughs> but I don't think now we would accept someone going straight from housewife to Congress. Right. I think we wouldn't accept it as a real job, which I think is unfortunate. Do you think that needs to change? Yeah, I think we need to value. I think we need to value unpaid labor. Yeah, as a real thing and a real skill builder. My mum talks about that now. She's like, it's a job. I need to get paid for doing housework. Like it's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Wales in in the UK and it's it's very different. I think I was I was talking to Ashanti um about politics and the fact that we don't really learn politics. Well I at least I didn't in high school there was no curriculum about politics. There was no courses up until university really that we as women can learn about what our rights are and just get involved if you want mm-hmm. to. And sometimes by then you're either too enraged or you're just <laughs> you're just kind of concentrating on something else or, or you've chosen another path and you just kind of think, oh, I wish I wish I could have had that experience in A-levels, then I could have taken it with me to university and probably got ahead, you know, with marks and classes and things, which is something that I should campaign for because I, I feel like I missed out. <laughs> Yeah, you feel very passionately about it, definitely. <laughs> so you've previously described your political playlist as a podcast slash primary survival kit to prepare women to vote during the 2020 elections. And since then, a definitive guide to the Biden-Harris administration and Congress. Do you think your podcast makes listeners more likely to participate politically? And if so, what about your podcast does that? Well, I think that, um, I think you need to know who your audience is Mm -hmm. and gear your content towards them. I think about this when I'm designing campaigns, that a campaign for everyone is really a campaign for no one because you're not specific enough to engage people. So my listeners are people who are probably likely to vote already, but are looking for a little bit of a deeper dive, but don't have all the time in the world Mm -hmm. to be, um, to be going super, super deep and taking tons of perspectives. So I like to bring in a lot of perspectives quickly in a way that sounds accessible to them, um, which is why we had positioned ourselves when the show first started as a guide to the, the presidential primary. The, you know, people didn't have the time to get into as many candidates as there were, I think 15, 16, 17. Um, So bringing in the experts to really help us evaluate it. So not just which candidate they would support, but giving them tools to understand how they would evaluate Mm. which candidates to support. Um, So that's the idea is that, you know, people who are looking for a little bit of a deeper dive, I'm I'm probably not moving non-voters to voters. I'm probably moving engaged citizens to becoming maybe authier voters or get involved in a higher level engagement and civic participation. So maybe that means volunteering to call other voters or talking to friends who are non-voters, kind of moving them up the ladder of engagement. So do you think that politically being politically participant is kind of a broad spectrum of things, the possibilities that you can be? Do you think listening into a political podcast in itself is at least participating in a, a political discussion? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think becoming more informed and getting more perspectives is definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, what we see with with getting information off the internet, which now everybody does, mm-hmm. is that it tends to uh, play to your confirmation bias. Right. So serve you up articles that just confirm the bias that you have already. Mm. So I think a podcast does give the ability to bring in new perspectives and have different conversations. And so becoming more engaged and more informed is definitely the first level to becoming more engaged. But I do think there's a class of people who like to just keep talking in circles and not actually take action. Uh So that's why I say yes and no, like, yes, arming you becomes, gives you more likely to then take more action, but just knowing things and talking to other like-minded people is not enough. So what kinds of political, um, you know, activities would you like to see listeners do? Well, I'd like to see more engagement with lawmakers. You know, having worked at a federal level, I know how valuable the lawmakers find those contacts from people who live, the constituents who live in their states or districts, whether it's calls to their offices or talking to them in person when they see them um, or even writing letters. Mm -hmm. They really value them a lot and people don't always think they do. So they don't, they don't even bother. It feels inconvenient. It feels hard. They don't do it. Uh, but I think our federal policy would look very different if people actually really used their positions to contact lawmakers. Great, thank you. So I have one final question for you. What are your three pieces of advice for a woman listening wanting to start her own political podcast like yourself? (laughs) Great question. Um, I would say uh, know know what the field is. Mm Um, of other shows and take inspiration, whether it's podcast or otherwise, but see what seems to be resonating. Um, actually, okay, I'm going to make that my second point. My first point will be my earlier point, is, which is um, know, know your audience, like who you want to go after, yep. and then design backwards from that about what you think will resonate with them. So be goal-oriented when you do it. Um, the other thing that I would say, and this is not exclusive to podcasts, own your content own your intellectual property it nothing is worth is worth like no big deal is worth signing away your ability to have your last sign off on your own product and your own name and not being able to walk away with it like most podcast production companies will own the show and then hire you back to your own show okay and they own the show, right. which means the production company has the last word of sign off on creative content and you can get fired out of your own show. Mm. Okay. And if you walk away, you can't take your show with you. So owning your own content in a way that is empowering as well, I guess. All right. Yeah. Nothing like no deal is worth no. not being able to shape. Like you are the one on the line. Okay. Like it is your show. You are the host. Yeah. And nothing is worth not being able to decide where the direction it goes in. So guard it and keep it yours. Even if it means starting smaller, then start smaller. Definitely. So let's go through them again. The first one was... (laughs) Know your audience. Uh Second one was... Now I forget the second one. (laughs) Know your content is so important. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Maybe have confidence in your guests. Okay. You know, like reach out to who you want to reach out to. Yeah. You never know who's going to say yes. Yeah. 
And then the third one was keep it your own. Own your intellectual property. Yeah, own your own. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for um, finding space. I know that you're a very busy lady, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see the final product. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do share the episode link with your friends and family and on your social media stories. To find out more about any of the women I've spoken to in this special series, please check out my blog, whatsheblog.com and click on series two. You can also find all episodes on all major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching for the How To Podcast. Bye for now.